I should like to call your attention this morning to that incident in the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is recorded in the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, beginning at verse 22 and ending at verse 33. I will again remind you of the salient features. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. I call your attention to this incident as a part of a general consideration of the subject of spiritual depression, or of why it is that Christian people ever find themselves miserable and unhappy. The causes of this condition, as we are now seeing, this being our eleventh consideration of this subject, are indeed almost endless. Now, this particular incident has a great deal in common with the incident that we were considering together last Sunday morning, because that likewise was uh, an account of uh, something that happened on the sea. In that case, you remember it was that our Lord had gone into the boat with his disciples, but because he was very tired, he had gone into the stern of the vessel, and there he was lying soundly asleep, and a storm arose suddenly, and they got into difficulties, and were quite convinced that they were on the point of drowning. So in their terror and alarm, they wake up the Lord and say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And you remember he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the waves, and all was well. And then he rebuked them, saying, Where is your faith? Now, obviously, this incident has many features which are common with the, the, that previous incident that we considered last week in the eighth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. The main point being that this incident exactly like that concentrates its attention on faith, on the nature, the character of faith, and the importance of our having a right view of faith. But, of course, it does it in a slightly different manner. There the major trouble was, as we try to indicate, the failure to realize that faith is an activity, something that must be applied where is your faith? They had it, but they were not bringing it uh, to focus upon this particular problem. Now, this morning, as we shall see, while in general we are still considering the question of faith <coughs> and the true character of faith, it is a, a somewhat different aspect of the question 
and of the problem. However, we can't come to consider that, important as it is, without noticing one preliminary matter which is absolutely vital and essential. Again, it's the same point as we had last week. The first thing we notice here, again, is the person, the personality, if you like, of our blessed Lord. Here, once more, he stands out in all the fullness of his Godhead and of his unique deity. We see him himself walking upon the waves, though they were stormy and turbulent. And we see him likewise even enabling his servant, the apostle, to do the same. We likewise see him commanding the elements. We're bound to start with this because we can't begin to consider the question of faith and the true understanding of faith unless we are clear about him. We are not talking about any sort of faith. We are talking about Christian faith. And the preliminary, the essential preliminary to any consideration of that is, of course, to be clear about the person of our blessed Lord. There is no Christian message apart from that which starts by saying that Jesus of Nazareth was the only begotten Son of God, that he is the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there you see him standing out in the effulgence of his glory, the master of the universe, the Lord of the elements. He manifests it. He demonstrates it. I start with that, I say, because the whole purpose of these Gospels is to portray him. But it is also, of course, absolutely vital in any consideration of this question of spiritual depression, as we shall now go on to demonstrate. It is failure always to realize who and what he is, in some shape or form, that accounts for all our troubles. But clearly, again, the special object of recording this incident is, undoubtedly, to call our attention to this thing which happened to Peter. We see our Lord everywhere in the Gospels, if we have eyes to see at all, by faith, in his glory and in his deity. But all these separate incidents bring out something peculiar, something special of their own. And clearly, the great thing here is this incident as it affected particularly the Apostle Peter. Now, you see, the picture is this, isn't it? Peter starts off so well, so magnificently, and yet he gets into trouble and ends off so badly. Now, that's it. The Peter, who at first seems to be full of faith, ends off by being miserable and unhappy and cries out in desperation. And how quickly it all happens. We are told about this particular sea that one of its great characteristics was and is that storms came down upon it suddenly because of its peculiar characters in a purely geological sense. It's one of those seas that can be calm at one moment. The next moment there's a terrible raging storm that happened to the sea. It also happened to Peter. There's this sudden change in his whole position. But now, as I understand this incident, the really vital thing is for us to observe carefully and closely 
exactly what happened. Otherwise, we shall misunderstand the lesson. And the point, it seems to me, that must be emphasized is this. The big difference between the incident we considered last Sunday and this one is this. That last time, a fresh incident came in to upset the disciples. They'd entered the boat and all was well. Our Lord falls asleep, then the storm comes. But here, in this incident, as it concerns Peter, that is not the case at all. There is nothing new, there is nothing fresh. The storm had started and was raging before our Lord came anywhere near the disciples or near the boat. But the ship, we are told, was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary, and our Lord was there praying alone in the mountain. So that's the point we must grasp, that there are the disciples in the boat without their Lord, and the storm is raging. Then he suddenly appears, and this incident takes place. The point I'm emphasizing is that there was no new factor that Peter had to consider. Before he stepped out of the boat onto that water, the storm was there, and the billows were rolling, and the storm was raging. It wasn't that he stepped out onto smooth water, and then the storm came. The storm was there before the Lord ever appeared even near the boat at all. Now, that's a very important point as I understand it. There was no new factor whatsoever, as there was last Sunday. And yet, Peter got into trouble. Peter became unhappy and miserable and wretched and desperate. What's it all due to? Now that's the question. And the answer is that the trouble is entirely in Peter. And our Lord gives us the precise diagnosis. It was little faith. Oh, thou of little faith. Wherefore didst thou doubt it's little faith leading to the entry of doubt. Now then, here it seems to me that there are a number of great lessons which we can learn, and if we but learn them and grasp them, it will save us from many an attack of spiritual depression. What are they? Well, first and foremost, I must call your attention to what I uh, am constrained to describe as the Peter mentality. Or if you prefer it, the Peter temperament. Now many times we've had occasion to emphasize the fact that when we are converted and saved and become Christians, our temperaments do not change. They remain exactly what they were. You don't become somebody else, you're still yourself. Oh yes, we all say, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And yet we go on to add, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And that I is always the same. You're always yourself, and though you become a Christian, you're still yourself. You've got that own, your own peculiar temperament and your own peculiar characteristics. And the result of this is that we all have our special problems. There are certain problems, of course, that are fundamental and common to us all. And even this particular problem goes under the general category of sin and the results of the fall. But it comes to us in different ways, in several ways. We're all perfectly familiar with that. 
All members of a church are not the same. All members of any group, however small, are not the same. We all have certain things about which we have to be particularly and exceptionally careful. Other people are not troubled by those things at all. Ah, yes, but they've got other things about which they have to be careful. Your kind of mercurial person, your hot-tempered person, has to watch that very carefully. Yes, but you know, your phlegmatic and your lethargic person also has to be very careful. His trouble is that he doesn't get roused when he should be. He never knows any righteous indignation. He'll pass anything. He's so flabby in his whole mentality that he doesn't stand when he should stand. In other words, we've all got our particular difficulties, and they generally arise from our own peculiar temperament which God has given us. And I can go further and say this, that probably the thing we've all got to watch most of all is our strength, our strong point. We tend to fail, ultimately, at our strongest points. Now, I believe that's very true of Peter. The great characteristic of Peter, of course, was his energy, his uh, quick decisions, his energetic personality. Keen, enthusiastic, impulsive. Yet that was the thing that was constantly leading Peter into trouble. Because that was his characteristic, and it's a very good thing to have an energetic nature. Uh, some of the greatest men the, the world has ever known, if I understand them rightly as I read their biographies, are to be explained mainly by their energy, not by their intellectual capacity. Not by their wisdom and understanding, but their sheer energy. As you read the lives and biographies of the so-called great heroes of mankind, keep your eye on that. And there is a contemporary illustration of it. Energy is a great quality. And there generally goes with it this capacity for decision. But I say this was the thing that was constantly bringing Peter into trouble. It generally leads to an unsteady Christian life, an uneven Christian life, a Christian life that lacks imbalance. Now, what a perfect illustration of it we have here. Look at Peter at the beginning of this story. It really is amazing. There he is in a boat in the midst of a storm, and he's got sufficient faith to say to our Lord, If it be thou... Bid me walk to thee on the sea, and out he stepped and walked. How magnificent! Yes, but then look in the next few moments. There he is, crying out miserably. Now, that was always the case with Peter. When our Lord was talking about his death and how he was going to be forsaken, Peter doesn't hesitate to blurt out at once, though all forsake thee, I will follow thee, wherever it may go. The next moment, he is denying him with oaths and cursing. Now, I call that the Peter mentality. How common it is. This unsteadiness, this unevenness. This kind of person who is either right on top of the mountain or down in the deepest depths. Either full of enthusiasm and excitement and makes us all feel that we've never done anything. Or utterly despondent and feeling hopeless and even threatening to go out of the Christian life altogether. You know them, don't you? There is this type of person. What is it due to? What is the cause of this alternation between ecstasy and miserable failure? The answer is, I say, that it's due to this impulsive temperament. But analyzing it, we can put it like this. 
The trouble with this kind of person is that he tends to act without thinking. The trouble with this person's faith is that it hasn't been based upon thorough thought. The difficulty is that this kind of individual doesn't think things right through, doesn't work them right out. Now that was always, it seems to me, the trouble with Peter. You get him always in these Gospels as the first man to volunteer. Take that incident in the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to St. John again. They'd been out fishing all night and were miserable and had caught nothing. And then our Lord appears on the seashore. And when Peter, recognizing me, strips himself and jumps into the sea, he's the first always. Always the first in everything. Yet I say that was his trouble. And you have a perfect illustration of that even after Pentecost, lest somebody may say, oh yes, but all these incidents of yours were before Pentecost. Pentecost came and Peter was an entirely different man. Was he? I deliberately read that portion out of the second chapter of the Epistle to the Galatians to you in order to show you that Peter's temperament was not changed even by Pentecost. He still was the same essential man. And Paul had to rebuke him to the face. Over what? Well, over this that he hadn't worked out this question of justification by faith only as he should have done. And he had no excuse because he was the first man to admit the Gentiles into the Christian church. You remember the great Cornelius incident. He'd even had a vision from heaven. And I must say, as you read the account of him in the 10th of Acts, you feel that Peter rises to a magnificent height. It was a tremendous thing for a Jew to bring in the Gentiles into the Christian church. But you see, he went back on it at Antioch. When these messengers came down from James from Jerusalem, Peter dissimulated, we are told, and Paul has to withstand him to the face. Why, what was the matter with Peter? Well, it was this old trouble. He accepted positions without really understanding them, without really working them out. Now, that's the trouble with this type always. This energy, this capacity for decision, this impulsiveness tends them to make them do things intuitively and they rest on the intuitive action instead of then proceeding to work it right out to understand it and to grasp it. And the result is that there are these violent alternations in their spiritual life. That's the sort of graph of their spiritual life, isn't it? Instead of being that. Now, this is a very common cause of spiritual depression. And that is why we are dealing with it. Now that brings me to a second point which I'd like to emphasize. And that is the teaching of this incident concerning doubts. O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? This is important teaching. Thank God for it. Now, there are a number of things here. The first is that we ourselves sometimes produce our own doubts. There was no doubt that that was the trouble with Peter at this point. He produced his own doubts by looking at the waves. He led himself into difficulties. He shouldn't have done. It wasn't, I say, that somebody shouted out to the boat to him and said, Look here, Peter, do you realize what you're doing? What a risky thing it is. Not a word was said by anybody. There was nothing new at all. Peter himself, by looking at the waves, produced the doubts. 
I could keep you for the rest of the morning on that. But I mustn't do so because there are still more important matters. But my friends, let us be careful. We often lead ourselves into temptation. We lead ourselves into doubts. If you intermingle with certain things, you mustn't be surprised if you'll be filled with doubts. I'm referring to certain types of literature, for instance. Or venturing into certain arguments which, are, which will take you beyond your depth. How important this is. Christian people sometimes, in a very good uh, uh, desire to uh, be the means under God of converting certain people, will enter into scientific arguments. Now, the man they're arguing with happens to be a scientist, and they know nothing about science. But they're foolish enough to enter into arguments about science instead of refusing that because they don't know. And often I found people who've been shaken themselves because they've done that. In other words, what they should do at that point is stand on the truth as they know it and not attempt to deal with scientific questions with which they're not competent to deal. Incidentally, these scientific questions cannot in any way shake the Christian faith, but they are not in a position to show that. Others can. Therefore, they must reject that and say, I know nothing about science, but what I do know is this, and then they keep to that. We sometimes lead ourselves into doubts, and we must always be careful not to do that. The second thing, and this is the thing for which I thank God, is this. Doubts are not incompatible with faith. I found many people, many times in my pastoral experience, very unhappy because they haven't grasped that principle. Some people seem to think that once you become a Christian, you should never again be assailed by doubts. But that isn't so. Peter here still has faith. What our Lord says to him is this, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? He doesn't say to him, Peter, because you've doubted, you've got no faith at all. That's what many people say ignorantly. It's very wrong. Though you have faith, you may still be troubled by doubts. There are innumerable examples of this, not only in the scripture, but in the subsequent history of the Christian church. Indeed, I would go so far as to say this, at the risk of being misunderstood, that if anybody, short of being a very unusual saint, has never been troubled by doubts in his or her Christian life, such a person would do well to examine the very foundations again and make certain that it isn't a false peace or what I would call a presumptive believism. You read the lives of some of the greatest saints that have ever trod this earth, and you will find that they've been assailed by doubts. And our Lord here surely gives the final word on this. Doubts are not incompatible with faith. You may have doubts and still have faith, a weak faith. In other words, that would be my next principle. That if doubts gain control of us, it is an indication of weak faith. Me to be the essential teaching here with respect to doubts. And we should never allow this to happen. Doubts will attack us and besiege us, yes, but that doesn't mean that we allow them to master us. We must never allow that. How do we avoid it? The answer is that the antidote, and this is my third principle, the antidote to all this is great faith. It's little faith, 
that causes the men to be mastered by doubts. The antidote, therefore, must be a great faith, a big faith. And that, as I see it, is the thing that is emphasized here above everything else. What are the characteristics of a great faith, a big faith? Well, the first characteristic is this. It is a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and his power and a trust and a confidence in that. Now, Peter, as I've said several times already, starts off so well, doesn't he? Now, this is, you see, the essence of true faith. Here is a man, I say, with the other disciples in a boat, and there's a storm on the sea where the wind was contrary and the boat was being tossed by the waves. And it really was becoming rather desperate. But suddenly our Lord appears and they say, what's this? A man walking on the water, it's impossible. They say, this must be some kind of a ghost. It's a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And then this magnificent exhibition of the essence of true faith by Peter. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Now that's the essence of true faith. You see what it means. It means that Peter says to, says to our Lord, if you really are the Lord, well then I know there's nothing impossible with you. Give proof of it by commanding me to step out, unto, out of this boat onto this raging sea and enable me to walk to you. He believes in the Lord, in his power, in his person, in his ability. Yes, but he doesn't only believe in it theoretically, he trusts it. So we are told here, and notice the details, how important they are. Peter went down out of the ship and walked on the water. Now that's the essence of faith. Lord, if it be thou, that's what faith always says. If it is indeed you, well then I know you can do this. Command me to do it and I'll do it. And he did it. Here again is the great principle that we must always take hold of very firmly. The Christian faith begins and ends with a knowledge of the Lord. That's it. Must I say it again? It begins with a knowledge of the Lord. Not a feeling. Not an act of will, but a knowledge of this blessed person. There's no value in any feeling. There's no value in any action. And let it's based upon this. Christianity is Christ. And Christian faith means believing certain things about him and knowing him. Oh, I've already mentioned the most important one, who he is. The Lord of glory come down amongst us. Knowing something about the incarnation and the virgin birth. Knowing why he came. Knowing what he did when he came. Knowing something about his atoning work. Knowing that he came, as he said himself, not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Knowing that he said, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. Knowing that he bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead unto sins, should live unto righteousness. Do you know, my friends, I find almost invariably when people come to me in a state of spiritual depression, 
that they're depressed just because they don't know those things I've just been saying as they ought to? But they say, I'm such a miserable sinner. You don't know what I've been. You don't know what I've done. Why do they say that to me? They say that to me because they've never understood what he means when he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The very thing they're saying in self-condemnation is the very thing that gives them a right to go to him and to be certain that he receives them. But you see, it's failure to know that and to believe that. That's where faith is weak. Strong faith means to know these things. I'm constantly having to say these things. I'm constantly having to write them. I had to write a long letter yesterday on this very point to a man I've never seen. Poor man, miserable, held captive, in bondage. Why? Well, because he doesn't see that Christ is the friend of publicans and sinners, that he came to die for such people. He isn't clear about the person, he isn't clear about the work of this blessed person. You see, his faith is weak, the doubts are there. And there are many, I say, who go through life miserably and unhappy. Because they're not clear about this. If only they did understand these things, I say they would find that the very cause of condemnation becomes the way of release in and of itself. In other words, my dear friends, the great antidote to spiritual depression is biblical doctrines, Christian doctrines. Not being worked up in meetings, not singing. Knowing the principles of the faith. Knowing the doctrines, understanding them. That's the way. That's the biblical way. That's Christ's own way. It's the way of the epistles. The antidote to depression is knowledge of him. And you get that in this word. And it takes trouble. You must take trouble to learn it. It's hard work. It's difficult work. Yes, but you've got to study it and pray over it and give yourself to it. The tragedy of the hour, it seems to me, is that people are far too dependent for their happiness upon meetings. This has been the trouble for many years in the Christian church. And that is why so many are miserable. They don't know the truth. Well, there it is. Our Lord said it, didn't he? To the people who suddenly believed on him, he said, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free from doubts and fears. Free from depression. Free from the things that get you down. It's the truth that frees. And it's the truth about him. In his person. In his work. In his offices. Christ as he is. Very well, that's the first thing. Let me hurry to the second. The second thing is having started with that as Peter so rightly started with it. Don't forget the second. Peter did. The second thing is refuse afterthoughts. Refuse afterthoughts. Ah, oh, but you say it's good always to think again. Not in this Christian faith. It's folly. Doubts, you know, are really very foolish and very ridiculous, aren't they? I feel there's something very ridiculous about the action of Peter. It's an easy thing to say from the pulpit when I've done the same thing myself many times, and we all have, but nevertheless it's good for us to see how foolish and ridiculous it is so that the next time we attempt it we might remember this picture. Look at this man, Peter. He should never have looked at those waves at all. Why not? Well, for this reason. 
he'd really settled that question before he went out of the boat. Now, do you see why I emphasized at the beginning this important detail? That the storm was raging before the Lord ever came to the boat. It would have been entirely different if Peter had stepped out onto a calm sea and then the storm had come. Then there'd be a good excuse for him. But it wasn't that. I'm putting it like this. Peter, when he said to our Lord, If it be thou, bid me come to thee, had really dealt with the question of the waves. He'd been struggling with them for some time already. He knew that the boat was tossing and rocking and that the sea was all of a turmoil in this way. But he says this, which means that he has said to himself, I don't care what the sea is doing. He is above it all. He'd solved that problem and he'd stepped out and proved that he was quite clear about it. He'd got out of the boat and he was walking on the sea. There was nothing new at all. There was no new factor he was not confronted by any sort of new problem. And the Lord Jesus Christ was actually enabling him to walk on the turbulent waves. Then why look at them again, I ask? What reason is he for doing so? What argument is there for his doing so? Why consider them again? Not at all. It's madness, it's folly, it's ridiculous. And that's always the trouble with this kind of weak faith. It goes back again over a question it's already solved. My dear friend, if you've ever believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you must in some shape or form have dealt with all the objections and the difficulties or you wouldn't have done it. Well, then why go back over them? It's just sheer folly. Not only the matter of your belief, if it's a question of conduct and action and behavior, the work you're doing, something the Lord has called you to, something he's enabled you to do, why sit down and again face problems that you've already put behind you before you've stepped out of the boat? I say again that this negative aspect of faith is very important. Having believed on him, I say, shut the door on certain things. Refuse to look at them. If you have dealt with them already, don't go back over them. How often have I had to say that in this series? How often is our trouble due to the fact that we will go back and back and back? Shut the door. Peter should have done that. Now I say there was no excuse for him. There was no argument at all. There was nothing new to consider. Well, therefore, why consider it? That's it. Leave it. It is of the essence of faith to refuse things, to reject things, to have nothing to do with them to say, I've already dealt with you, you're already defeated, you're already out of sight. I go on. It's a vital part of faith. Which brings me to my next principle, which is this. The next characteristic of this great faith is that it persists steadily in looking to him and looking at him. Or oh, let me divide that up in this way, just two or three Simple principles. Faith says this. What he has begun to do, he can continue to do. What he started doing was a miracle, so if he can do a miracle, he can go on doing it. What he has already initiated, he can keep going. Being confident of this very thing, says Paul to the Philippians, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Yes, says top lady. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength, will complete. It's unanswerable. Secondly, you and I can only conquer doubt while we look at him and are clear about him. 
Without him, we are absolutely hopeless. I don't care how long you've been in the Christian life, you depend upon him every step. Without him, we can't do anything, I say. We can only conquer all our doubts and all these things that are there, ever hammering at that back door by looking steadily at him, not looking at them. The way to answer them is to look at him. The more you know him and his glory, the more insignificant and ridiculous they'll become. So you keep steadily looking at him. Now let me put it like this. You cannot live on an initial faith. That's what Peter seems to have been trying to do. He started off with a great faith. And then, you see, instead of going on with the same faith, he, as it were, tries to live upon it. You can't do it. You can't live on an initial faith. You can't live on a preliminary experience. Don't live on your conversion, my dear friend. You'll be down before you know where you are if you try to. You can't live on one event, one great climactic, dramatic experience. No, no. It's a constant life of faith. You keep on looking to him. Every day we walk by faith. And you'll need faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as much on your deathbed as you did the night you were converted. You need him all the time. So you keep looking to him. Peter began looking at the waves. You know, the Bible's full of that. I see that always perfectly illustrated in the way that the children of Israel had to go and collect the manna every day. Every day, except Sunday, you remember. That's the Lord's method always. He doesn't give us, give us enough for a month. No, no, you need him day by day. Meet him every morning. Start your day with him. Never move until you've got into contact with him. Keep in touch with him. That was the fatal error of Peter. He looked away from him. It is the fight of faith. You're walking on turbulent waves, and the only way to keep walking is to keep steadily looking at him. May I say a final word of comfort and consolation? It's all here in this wonderful incident, isn't it? The first is, my dear friend, he will never let you sink. Peter cries out in terror and alarm, Lord, he says, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Thank God for this consolation. He'll never let you sink. You belong to him. You may fail him. You may feel you're on the point of going down once and forever, finally. Never. No man shall pluck them out of my hand. The end of eighth of Romans again. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us. Never. Just when you think you've gone, the hand will be there, and he'll clutch hold of you. Just cry out to him. Yea, in the night, my soul, my daughter, cry clinging heaven by the hymns. And lo, Christ walking on the waters, not of Gennesaret, but Thames. That's it. Yea, when so sad thou canst no sadder cry, and upon thy so sore loss shall shine the traffic of Jacob's ladder, pitched betwixt heaven and Charing Cross. Francis Thompson had experienced it, as Peter did, and it's always the same. Cry out unto him in your desperation. Don't trade on that, but if you ever are desperate, cry out, and he'll clutch you, he'll steady you, he'll pick you up, and there'll be peace. Ah, but I don't end with that. I must end with this. 
The great lesson of the whole incident, in a sense, is this, isn't it? That he can keep us from falling. We never need be desperate like that. We never need to cry out like that. If we only keep on looking at him and believing in him, we shall never fall. We just keep straight on. If Peter had only looked at him, you'd have gone on walking until he'd come to him. He would never have become desperate. He would never have had to cry out. He is so great. He's the Lord of the universe. He can not only walk on the sea himself, he can enable Peter to walk on the sea. Nothing shall be impossible with him. All things are possible with God and he is God. So faith, looking at him, says with Charles Wesley, faith, mighty faith, the promise sees and looks to that alone, laughs at impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. That's faith. Faith, mighty faith, the promise sees in him and looks to that alone, to nothing else. It laughs at impossibilities, these boisterous waves, and cries, It shall be done. Unto him, therefore, who is able to keep us from falling, and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Unto him, the only wise God, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.